0: Good morning, uh, and a uh, happy Easter to you all. Let's, uh, let's do our traditional Easter call and response. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This morning, as we consider the resurrection, we're going to be looking at one particular question that I think is absolutely vital to our, the church's celebration of Easter throughout all of the centuries, uh, and indeed is probably pretty close to our minds as we endure yet another Easter with COVID. Uh, why? is the resurrection important? Why does the resurrection actually matter? These questions are deep in our minds this morning and have been throughout the history of the church. We need a good answer to that question. Why does the resurrection matter? We need a good answer to that question if we're going to keep our faith in the middle of a secular age. There are lots of people who will say things like there wasn't an actual historical bodily resurrection. All that really matters is just the resurrection ideal, the ideal of life coming back from the dead in the same way that spring comes from the dead of winter. That's all that we really need. We just need the resurrection ideal. Other people will go even further than that. They'll say something to the effect that, uh, that not only did the resurrection not happen, but it's actually better off. We're better off without it. And so if you ask any, any of these people, why does the resurrection matter? They'll say, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's not something you need. It is something that we are better off without. And so if we are going to share our faith with our neighbors Uh, Or even if we are going to keep our faith in the midst of competing mindsets, we need a good answer. Why does the resurrection matter? Uh, We also need a good answer to that question if we hope to keep our faith in the face of suffering. I think a lot of times for Christians, the doctrine of the resurrection can become this stale, dusty idea, this intellectual doctrine that we sort of keep up on the shelf for display. Uh, We'll point to it, we affirm it, we say we believe in it, but we don't really take it down off the shelf and put it to work in our daily lives. And so if you ask many Christians why the resurrection matters, they'll say, I'm not quite sure. I know that it does, but I'm not really sure why. And if that is your faith, when suffering hits you, when you run into suffering like running into a brick wall, it is very, very hard to hold on to the faith if it seems like it's just irrelevant to daily life. Well, the Apostle Paul was convinced that the resurrection mattered. For Paul, the resurrection mattered quite a lot. The resurrection changed everything for Paul. If you look through his story in the book of Acts, the resurrection changed everything. Jesus was the living Lord, and he transformed Paul from being a persecutor of the church to being a leader within the church. Christ's resurrection was everything for Paul. It was the Christian doctrine. And so anytime any church started to doubt the reality of the resurrection, it was like a smoke alarm that was going off. Paul needed to respond because the people there were in danger. And so I want you to hear the scripture reading this morning with that image in mind. Paul writes like a man who is trying to put out a fire. He is not writing some abstract intellectual lecture on a theological topic. No, he is writing to save people's faith from the flames. Why does the resurrection matter? It means that death will be no more. It means that sin will be no more, and it means that everything you do now has meaning. Once you see that, once the resurrection means that to you, it's hard to overstate how important the resurrection actually is, how much the resurrection matters. The resurrection is the key to our hope, and it's the key to our purpose in a broken and painful world. So with that in mind, brothers and sisters, please let me invite you to turn your attention to God's holy word. We're going to be reading 1 Corinthians 15 together, picking up in verse 20, we'll be reading verses 20 through 28, and then we'll be flipping over to verses 50 through 58. Please hear now God's holy word. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man also uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ." Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now moving to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Brothers and sisters, thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you who were raised from the dead through the working of the Holy Spirit, we praise you this morning. And we ask that you would be with us as you were with those first disciples, that First Easter morning, morning, first Easter evening, you warmed their heart. Their hearts burned while you were in their presence. And Lord, I ask now that you would be with us in the same way, through the same Spirit who raised you from the dead. I pray that through your Spirit, you would illuminate your word, that we would know you, that you would walk amongst us, that we would be able to taste and see that you are good, that we would experience the reality that you are alive and that you rule and reign over us as our good king. Lord, be glorified now as we pay attention to your voice. Speak to us now, we ask. In the name of Christ, we pray all of these things. Amen. Before we answer why the resurrection matters, I just want to affirm that we believe the resurrection actually happened. There is good historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, and it prompted his followers, when they saw him, when they met the risen Christ, to do things like fall down before him and proclaim things like, my Lord and my God. They were transformed when they met him. Like Paul, they were changed by the resurrection, and we are changed too. And so this morning, if you have any doubts Or questions about the reality of the resurrection, I invite you to come talk to me about it. I would love to talk to you about it. I also have a little handout that's at the back of the sanctuary, just a few pages of why I think the resurrection actually happened, the evidence for it, so you can pick that up at the back, or you can email me uh, if you would like a copy of that. We think that the uh, resurrection actually happened, and it's very important that the resurrection actually happened. Like we heard in the assurance of forgiveness already this morning, if the resurrection did not happen, uh, then nothing I'm about to say is true. Uh, that, that death still would exist, sin would still exist, life would be meaningless, but we affirm, we believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, and because he lives, the resurrection actually matters. Because Jesus rose from the dead, death will be no more. Death will be no more. Twice in our passage as we read it, Paul declares that death will be conquered by Jesus. Verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Or we might think to verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Death will be no more. It doesn't mean that we won't die in this life, but it means that the power of death is broken, and so it cannot hold us forever. We will live again. We will escape the clutches of death. You can think of it like a big, strong wrestler, maybe like Andre the Giant. Think of Andre the Giant. Now, if Andre the Giant came up and grabbed you, you would never be able to escape his clutches unless a stronger person came along. And a stronger person was able to pry his strong arms off you, who breaks the hold on you. That's like death. We are in death's clutches, and there is no escape unless someone stronger comes and frees us. Jesus is that stronger man. Jesus is actively prying death's grip off of us. How do we know? It's because death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold Jesus. Jesus rose again, and he will raise us too. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all die be made alive. And even now, even in our lifetime now, death's grip is weakening on us. Death is no longer our mortal enemy. No, instead, death is transformed. Death is now something that just ushers us from this life into God's presence. As the great hymn says, Jesus lives, and death is now but my entrance into glory. Death, the strong man, has been beaten by someone stronger. Jesus lives, and we will too. You, friend, will have an eternal life in Christ. And that is profoundly good news, that we will live forever. Deep down, the deep longing of our soul is that we would live forever. I was in first grade when I first had to say goodbye to a friend. There was a boy two doors down from me, and I played with him every single day after school. And uh, after a year, his family moved. Uh, So I had to say goodbye. It was sort of the first big goodbye that ever happened in my life. And it hurt. It hurt to say goodbye to this friend when he moved and and i think that teaches us something even then as a first grader my soul my body knew something that was true even though my mind wasn't able to grasp the significance of it yet we were never meant to say goodbye we were never meant to say goodbye to anybody we were built for eternity for eternal life that's why saying goodbye hurts that's why estrangement hurts that's why death hurts It was never meant to happen. We were made for eternity. Now, some people in this world will try to tell you the opposite. This idea has been around for a long time, but more and more I hear people trying to normalize death trying to make you feel comfortable with the idea that after death, you just won't exist anymore. And in their minds, non-existence after death is actually a good thing. They might even call it a blessing. And so you'll hear about it in songs, like one I heard the other day about a guy who was contemplating his life and his eventual fate, and he sings, My final act was to disintegrate. And then immediately followed that line up with this, There is no past. The future has been cast. Now I'm free to live at last. As if a destiny of disintegration was somehow freeing. Or you'll read about it in in books like this from a critically acclaimed book. This book has gotten a ton of great press. A critically acclaimed book, it's entitled This Life secular faith, and spiritual freedom. The writer says, I do not want to die. At the same time, I do not want my life to be eternal. And eternal life is not only unattainable, but also undesirable. Friends, people are going to tell you that eternal life is not a good thing, and that your dislike of death that your revulsion to saying goodbye to anyone, that is just a natural thing, and you just need to accept it. It's just a part of life that you need to get over, but they they are wrong. That That idea is wrong. Don't give in to those temptations to believe that non-existence after death is a good thing. It's wrong. It's not. Don't give up your hope. Listen to what your body tells you. Your body knows it hurts to say goodbye. And it is unreasonable for you to snuff out that pain by just saying it's natural. We long for eternity, and in Christ we will have it. We will have eternal life. And specifically, we'll have eternal life in the body. Paul is emphatic on this point. Listen to verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. We will not have eternal life without the body. We're not going to be disembodied souls floating around in a celestial kingdom. We will have physical bodies to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. How do we know that? Let's listen to verse 49. Paul says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now that man of dust, that's Adam. And like him, we currently have mortal, perishable bodies. But then there's the man of heaven. We will be like the man of heaven, that is, Jesus. One day we will have a body like his. We will have an imperishable, immortal body. And that will be an imperishable, immortal, physical body. We know that Jesus had a physical body after the resurrection. His disciples saw him. They touched him, they ate with him, and our bodies will be made like his body. That's what it means for us to bear his image. We will have eternal life in the flesh. And don't underestimate how wonderful a gift it is to have bodily existence. Bodily existence is a tremendous blessing. It's a joy. I was reminded of this recently through an episode of the TV show, The Umbrella Academy. Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, And in the show, one of the characters is a ghost. And this ghost has had to endure a decade of bodiless existence. But for one brief hour, he is able to have a body again. And it's really beautiful the way that the show portrays his joy at being once again in the flesh. You see joy just beaming off of his face as he walks outside on a beautiful day. He relishes the sunshine coming in on his skin, the smell of the fresh air, the breeze that he can feel. Again, you just see joy radiating from him. One of the first things that he does is take off off his shoes, and his socks so that he can walk barefoot on the grass. So he can just feel what grass feels like underneath his feet. He relishes bodily existence. Just think about the joys of being in a body, having a body. This flesh right here, it's the warmth of a hug. The sound of classical music, of harmonies coming into the air, the the taste of bacon, if you like bacon. It it, it tastes great, it smells great. Now, true, in this life, there are certainly downsides to having a body, having a mortal, perishable body. We have aches, we have pains, we have sickness. And so imagine the pure joy of bodily existence when our bodies are healed. When there's no more death in our bones, when there's no more aches and pains, there's no more wearing out. It's just eternal life in the flesh. It's a wonderful future. So why does the resurrection of Jesus matter? It means that death will be no more. Death will be no more. Also, because Jesus rose from the dead, sin will be no more. Jesus didn't just conquer death, he conquered sin. Listen to verse 55. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. And according to Paul, that's where the real power of death is. It's it's sin. That's its sting. Why do we flinch when a, a bee flies by? We don't tend to flinch when a butterfly is flying by, but we all flinch when we see a bee flying by. It's it's because we're afraid of getting stung by it, right? We're afraid of the stinger of the bee. Now, the stinger of death is sin. And according to the scriptures, when Jesus took death in his arms, he ripped out that stinger. Verse 57, "...but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." Jesus broke the oppressive power of sin in his resurrection. That also is great news. It is misery for us to exist under sin's Power, sin is a cruel, cruel dictator. It controls our actions and turns us towards harmful things that are painful and destructive. Sin wrecks our world. Sin separates us from our God. But the resurrected Jesus will destroy every rule, every authority, every power, according to verse 24. Jesus is waging a war against sin and evil and demonic oppression, and he will win. He will win this war against sin because he rose again from the dead. What good news that we will be freed from sin. For the Christian, sin is miserable, right? Sin is miserable. Temptation stinks. Knowing that we have sinned against God and sinned other, against other people, that, that is painful to us. Sin hurts us, but sin will be no more. We will be freed from sin forever. And not just us, but the entire creation will be freed from sin. The theologian Kirsten Sanders makes an important observation about the nature of sin. She says, for Christian theology, sin is not primarily a way to name a particular thing, like an action that I might do. Rather, sin is a way to name a state of being. Sin is a state of being. We tend to think about sin in terms of these individual, personal categories, again, like an action that I have done to another person, but sin permeates the entire world. The Westminster Confession of Faith, or the Westminster Shorter Chasm, Catechism, calls this an state of sin and misery. Sin is our state of being. It affects all of creation. I think of those pictures of the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression, and when you look at those pictures, you just see sadness. Everything in the picture is sad. There's brokenness in there. The houses are sad. The plants are withering. The animals are dying. The people are oppressed by the suffering. They're all wrapped up. There's sadness everywhere. The burden of that brokenness. That's what it's like to exist in this state of being called sin. Nothing works right. Everything suffers but Jesus rose again from the dead. Sin will be no more, so all of creation will be restored. And most importantly, our union with God will be restored. Our union with God will be restored because death will be dead. In pretty much every pop culture discussion of heaven, someone says something like this, yeah, but won't it be boring? Sure, it might be nice, to eat great food for a couple of thousand years, but won't it eventually get old? And I would agree. I would agree with that. It would get old if that were the whole story. But there's just one thing missing from all of these pop descriptions of heaven that's just life in this world going on and on and on. Here's what's missing. God. God is missing from these visions of heaven. And now listen to how Paul describes eternal life at the end of verse 28. It's just not just life in the body existing forever and ever, but it's life existing with God in the body forever and ever. Christ's victory over sin allows God to be all in all. That's verse 28. Once sin is purged, then God will permeate the creation in exactly the same way that sin currently permeates the entire world now. As John Calvin puts it, all things will be brought back to God that they may be closely bound to him. They may be closely bound to him. That's what it means for God to be all in all. Jesus restores our union with God. Will heaven be boring no, because God will be there in all of his fullness. You cannot be bored with God unless you think very little of God. But, and I think that's the problem with all of these pop culture discussions of heaven. They fail to see how God is the most interesting, exciting, wonderful being. You can't get bored in his presence. Ancient theologians would describe God as the epitome, the, the highest truth, goodness and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. That was God, and truth is wonderful. Truth is fantastic. We tend to think about truth in our culture like truth being revealed, and then therefore it's a bad thing. Uh, Like like there's dirt on someone, and we just can't wait for the truth to be brought out. But, But think about truth in terms of the wonder of the world. Truth is a glorious thing. Remember how it feels to learn something amazing for the first time, Like exactly how many stars people think there are in the galaxy or the universe. It's amazing. It's wondrous to learn something new. Remember that sense of awe at truth and hold that experience of truth in your mind. And then on top of that, now consider goodness. What's a picture of goodness? That comes to mind. What's an experience that you've had of goodness or experience that you've seen of goodness in, uh, in the culture? I think of Dick and Rick Hoyt, the father son team who ran the Boston Marathon together, the father pushing his son in a wheelchair because the son wanted to inspire others. You see the joy of the son in this, in this father son team. You see the self sacrificial love of the father, and it is moving. It is truly glorious. To see goodness in action. Goodness is a wonderful thing to behold. And now think about beauty. Think about beauty. What's the most wonderful, beautiful thing that you have ever experienced? Maybe it was a piece of music that just left you breathless. Or maybe standing on top of a mountain or some sort of experience out in nature where you were just taken aback by how glorious and beautiful creation is, truth goodness, beauty. Imagine experiencing all of those things at once. So i just try to hold all of those amazing emotions in your mind at once. That would be incredible, right? That's just a fraction of what it will be to stand in the presence of God, to experience the fullness of truth, goodness, and beauty all at once in the flesh forever. When we are closely bound to God, we will be filled with the most remarkable joy. Of course, heaven cannot be boring. It will be bliss. We won't be tempted by sin anymore. Creation won't suffer anymore. And God will be all in all. The resurrection matters. It means that sin will be no more. Now, at this point, someone might say, wait, wait. It's all well and good that you have such a nice description of the future. But what about the present moment? Doesn't all of this description of this glorious future without death and without sin, doesn't that take our, uh, take our attention away from the very real needs of the present age? What about today? Doesn't this doctrine of the resurrection just make us so heavenly-minded that we can't be of any earthly good? Well, according to Paul, actually, the resurrection helps us to do earthly good. It animates us for life in the flesh. Now the resurrection makes life now meaningful. It's not that you just have a good future. This life has meaning. Everything you do now has meaning because of the resurrection. See, without the hope of eternal life, this life is meaningless. And Paul picks up on that in, uh, in verse 32. We didn't read it. Let me read it to you now. Here's what Paul says if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's the logical conclusion if this life is all that there is. And no matter how many arguments I've heard to the contrary, I just think it is a really poor consolation to be told that in the midst of all of the suffering of life, this life is all that there is. So you might as well get over that, And then do good to other people because that's just the right thing to do. No, without eternal life, this life is meaningless. This life does not have purpose. But Jesus rose again from the dead and you will too. You have a hope that extends into the future without end. And you have a Savior who is present with you now. Jesus lives and he is with you even now. So that your life now is a partnership with Christ. Listen to verse 58. Therefore, in light of all of these verses about the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your life, your work, your labor is now for the Lord. It's the work of the Lord, and it is in the Lord. You're working for Jesus now, and Jesus is with you in your toil. How then could it be in vain? Was the crucifixion in vain? No. Did Jesus die in vain? Absolutely not. He is risen, and therefore your labor in the risen Lord is not in vain. It cannot be in vain, because the living Jesus is with you in everything that you do. Your life is a partnership with Christ. And so, where has the Lord called you to labor? Where has the Lord called you to to labor. Maybe it's in a relationship with a non-Christian friend or family member and you worry because it seems like all of your attempts to share the gospel with this person just haven't gone anywhere. You need to know your labor is not in vain. Their future is in God's hands, not yours. And if you have attempted to live your life in a way that you've proclaimed the gospel in word and deed through the quality of your life and in the relationship with this person, then God is glorified. God's glorified as we live out the gospel in the midst of the world. God's glorified. And that's the point of our existence, is to glorify him. And so good job. You have done good work. Your labor is not in vain. Christ is glorified in you. Maybe God has called you to labor through something that's humbling, maybe like a thankless job or something like that. You have spent years of your life on small things. You wonder if your life's a failure because you can't really point to any major accomplishment or achievement in your life. Your labor is not in vain. Even the smallest thing that we do, if it's done as an act of love, is glorifying to God. God is pleased with it. He's pleased with your small works of love. He sees it. He knows it. He's with you in it. And he will reward it in the life to come. Your labor is not in vain. Maybe God has called you to labor in a place of brokenness, and it's hard to see any progress. Try as you might. You've tried and tried and tried, but you can't seem to really make a difference, and it just seems like things are the same, if not worse. Your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. God does not look at the results of your work so much as the heart of your work. He wants to see that you desire him, that you want to glorify and honor him. And here's what he's asked of you, that you would do justice, that you would love kindness, that you would walk humbly with God. That's meaningful labor, even in the midst of great brokenness. The results are up to God. What matters is that you have walked with him in the midst of it. Your labor is not in vain. Maybe God has called you to labor through suffering. Maybe God has called you to labor through pain, and it seems like your gifts are being wasted. You could do so much more for the world if it wasn't for your own suffering. It seems like all you can do is survive. Like all you can do at the end of the day is just hold on to your faith. That's the best thing that you can do. Your labor is not in vain. You're going to live again. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God sees your perseverance and he's using it to draw you to himself both now and forever. Your labor is not in vain. Wherever God has called you to labor, it is his work that you are doing, and he is with you because Jesus rose again from the dead. Everything you do now matters. Again, it is partnership with Christ. The resurrection matters because it makes this life matter. Now you can see why Paul wrote as a man who was trying to put out a fire, the resurrection is everything. It answers all of our deepest fears, all of our existential dread in the world, that we will disappear without anyone to remember us, that we will be separated from God, separated from meaning, that our lives right now are completely meaningless. The resurrection looks at those fears and says, Do not worry. Do not worry. Jesus lives, and you will too. That is why the resurrection matters. And so put this truth to work in your life this week. If you're not a Christian this morning, then I would urge you, I would beg you, please consider the truth of the resurrection and turn in faith to Christ. Believe that he rose again for you. Please believe in that, because if you do not trust in Jesus, then you're actively working against him. It might not seem like that to you, but you are working against Christ. You have declared yourself to be an enemy, and at the final resurrection, it will not be to glory. It will be to judgment, and so please escape that judgment by turning in faith to Christ even now. Please trust in him so that you can have a glorious future and a meaningful life even now. And if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Christ, then don't leave this doctrine on the shelf. This is the most important doctrine that we can put to work in our lives. Don't just affirm it mentally and fail to put it to use in your daily life. When you find yourself worrying about the present, or when you find yourself worrying about the future, or when you find yourself in great suffering, meditate on these truths. Keep them in mind. Ponder them until they transform your life. Christ is risen from the dead. Therefore, death will be no more. Sin will be no more. And everything you do now matters. Let's pray. Our Lord, what a joy it is to contemplate the resurrection. I do pray that all of us here would have faith in it, that you would transform all of us in the light of the risen Christ. Jesus, we praise you for your majesty. Holy Spirit, we praise you for your power to raise again from the dead. Jesus, we praise you for your conquest of death and sin. Thank you for waging war on it on our behalf. Thank you for the glorious future that we can anticipate, and thank you for the meaning that it gives us now. Please comfort us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we would know the truth of the resurrection, that we would be changed by it so that we can abound in your work, knowing that in you our labor is not in vain. Meet us in the power of the Spirit this week. Shine your face upon us, O risen Christ, we pray. In your name, amen.